The Week in Doubt, Episode 396. Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, the host of The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And before we begin, I'd like to quickly give a shout-out to a couple of new Patreon supporters. Well, kind of new. There's North Fork, who I think is new. I don't recall seeing that uh, username or handle before. And then there's a musician friend who I met through the show. And I believe they recently signed back up as a Patreon supporter. I don't want to give their real name because they have a kind of alter ego or alias that they perform or make music under. Hopefully they don't mind me at least saying the name of their band. The only reason why I hesitate is because I imagine if someone was bored or obsessed enough, they could try to play Amateur Sleuth and find out their, you know, identity by going through my patron list. But out of a desire to promote their stuff because I love their music and they're good guys, I'll throw caution to the wind. Uh, The name of the band is Voice of Doom. The guys in the band reached out to me years ago, and we quickly hit it off because we're into some of the, you know, the same music, share a love of the same horror movies, uh, both have an interest in the occult, etc. I'm a skeptic. I don't believe in the supernatural or anything, but I still nevertheless find things like demonology and the, and the occult kind of luridly fascinating, you know? And uh, a lot of Voice of Doom's music is inspired by things like old horror movies, the occult. In fact, one of their albums is actually inspired by the story of Jack Parsons, uh, a brilliant rocket engineer who was one of the founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who nevertheless was also heavily into the occult and was even a, a, a devotee of Aleister Crowley. And to make things even stranger, he was also an associate of L. Ron Hubbard bird pre-Scientology, so a really uh, wild and fascinating guy. And I have to admit to my shame, it had been a while since I checked in on Voice of Doom, and I was thinking, you know, let me see what they got going on. Have they released anything new? And so I went to their YouTube channel, and I saw that they had released a new video back in March, I believe, and it was for a song entitled Beyond the Door, not to be confused with Behind the Green Door, which I think is a a notorious 1970s porn movie starring the late Marilyn Chambers. Don't ask me how I know that. Anyway, different thing. Beyond the Door is also a 70s movie, but it's an Italian horror film that kind of shamelessly piggybacks on the success of The Exorcist. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that was a somewhat common phenomenon back in the day, where European filmmakers would seek to capitalize on the success of popular American films, etc., by making kind of cheap copycat movies. That doesn't mean that the films don't have value or aren't still fun to watch. In fact, I think there's a lot of people like myself who like watching those types of movies as a kind of guilty pleasure. The camp and sleaze and low-budget feel is kind of part of the fun. But as soon as I saw the name of the song was Beyond the Door, I was like, right on, you sickos. I see ya. I see what you're doing. And it's actually a really kick-ass song, too. Voice of Doom has a real kind of Danzig Misfits vibe that I really love. And I always feel, you know, self-conscious pointing out how a band I like sounds like another band I like because I don't want it to seem like I'm accusing someone whose music I love of being derivative. But everything's uh, derivative to some degree, especially with music. The trick is kind of threading the needle where, sure, you can hear the influence 
influence in the music, but it's still original and not overly derivative. I think that's what Voice of Doom successfully does. It's an homage to that kind of Danzig-esque, horror-punk, doom-rock kind of thing. But the songs are still new, original, and entertaining. And I always feel a little weird referring to music as entertainment. Because I think what music does for us, the kind of power it has over us, the catharsis it provides, um, is deeper than that. But you know what I mean. The music grabs you, you enjoy it. It's entertaining. But yeah, I've always loved uh, their stuff. And if you boys happen to hear this, let me know if you want me to play any of the tunes on the show. I always like doing that. It gives me a chance to shout out some good guys whose music I really like. And at the same time, it gives me an excuse to spice things up, you know, by playing some badass tunes on the show. But while I'm on the topic of friends and Patreon, I've got a good friend who I grew up with. We even used to write and play music together, and I believe he's also a Patreon supporter. Uh, but he got in touch with me about a week ago and suggested that I review the Netflix documentary series Sons of Sam on the show. I haven't watched it yet, but upon some cursory research, it looks like it focuses on or explores the idea that serial killer David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam, may not have been working alone. And so that sounds pretty intriguing. And it looks like it's narrated by Paul Giamatti, which is also pretty cool. So I might actually watch that this weekend and then try to cover it on the show next week. And it's funny, prior to the last episode where I talk about Albert Fish and Andre Chikatilo, I don't think I've ever really covered any true crime type of stuff on the show. But while I was working on that episode, out of nowhere, my friend gets in touch with me and uh, suggests that I review this David Berkowitz show on the podcast. And so I thought that was very strange, kind of an interesting, uh, another interesting little uh, synchronicity. Not saying there's anything spooky going on, but, uh, you know, it is kind of funny. You're sitting there working on a show about serial killers, and all of a sudden a friend gets in touch and suggests that you do a show on a serial killer. Uh, so, yeah, weird, wild stuff. Oh, yeah, and uh, one last listener mention. I saw that friend and listener, Goose Geese Mouse Meese, I think that's it, tweeted at me a couple of weeks back. And I've been horrible getting back to people on social media lately. I tried to find his tweet a little earlier, and it looks like he's just disappeared off of Twitter. Um, maybe you just changed your username, but I hope you're all right, brother. All right. Oh, and one more thing. One more thing, my horrible Columbo impersonation, before we dig into this week's stories. I was going to save this for the end of the show, but maybe more people will hear it here. Um, it's not a big deal, and I know it might seem like kind of a petty thing to be concerned with, but I've been doing this show for probably almost a decade now, holy crap, and for most of that time, my iTunes rating has always held strong at about 4.5 to 4, you know, and 3 quarter stars out of a possible 5, and that's something I've always been very thankful for, and whenever I would see that rating, it would kind of give me a little morale boost, but I noticed that, um... Fairly recently, I slipped down to four stars, and I've noticed that one star bar progressively getting longer. It doesn't seem like anyone's left any negative written reviews lately, but maybe people are just kind of clicking on that one star button, you know? And I'm like, you know, has the quality of the show slipped? Do people feel like the format's changed for the worse? 
Could it be people who resented how political I was getting there for a while? And of course, none of those possibilities are necessarily mutually exclusive, and it could be a mix of things. Um, but I did feel like my game was slipping for a while, I have to admit. Especially while I was kind of adjusting to, you know, the crap I'm taking for my uh, chronic migraines now. I had been feeling kind of zoned out. I had published some unscripted episodes that I felt were, you know, really subpar in retrospect. Um, but I've been making a concerted effort to try to raise the bar for the show again, and hopefully it shows. But if you enjoy the show and you happen to still use iTunes, because I think iTunes is basically defunct now, right? Unless you're using an older OS. Well, now that I think about it, that applies to Macs. A while back, Apple fragmented iTunes into a series of separate apps, a music app, a podcast app, etc., but for PC users, I believe it's still iTunes. That changed in carryover. And uh, that special hell of being uh, someone who insists on using iTunes on a PC. It's like every day you get the update reminder about QuickTime and iTunes. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. If you're someone who's still using iTunes or you use Apple's um, podcast app and you sincerely like the show, um, and I don't want anyone to go out of their way. But I would definitely appreciate it if, um, you know, you might take the time to either leave a star rating or even a written review. And I'll even read it on the air, like uh, in the good old days. And, you know, I'm not looking for pity reviews, so, you know, feel free to hold back a star or two if you feel like the show could use some improving, or feel free to leave some constructive criticism. But if you do really like the show definitely wouldn't mind a four or five star rating, you know what I'm saying? But anyway, finally, on to this week's stories. It only took us 10 minutes to get there. Um, so this first one is from Hemant Maida's Friendly Atheist, and it's entitled, A Michigan Student May Get Away With Preaching Christianity in Her Graduation Speech. And it's dated June 2nd, so just a couple of days ago, I'm recording this on the 4th. And so it starts off... When it comes to public school graduations, it's pretty clear that school officials have no business offering prayers from the stage. They can't include it in the program. They can't invite students to do their dirty work for them. Students also can't quote-unquote vote for a prayer. But what about student speakers? There have been issues in the past where student council presidents or valedictorians, for example, have used their time to talk about their faith. The question then becomes when the school ought to step in. In general, if the school vets speeches and knows what students are going to say on stage, then student speeches are no different than administrators' speeches. No prayers allowed. If the school doesn't vet speeches, then students can't get away with it. And that leads us to this controversy in Michigan. At John Glenn High School, valedictorian Savannah Leffler, and I have to admit, I actually feel kind of weird naming this young person. Who knows, maybe she's a legal adult, she could be 18, but still, you know, high school student or graduating student. Feels a little weird, but I guess uh, the cat's already out of the bag. Blame Hemet Maida. Anyway, so, throwing Hemet under the bus. Uh, she submitted a draft of her speech to administrators before quote-unquote honors night. The speech included a line about how, in quotes, the purpose of life is to live a life devoted to Christ. 
The school did exactly what the school needed to do. They told her she couldn't say that because it could come off as a promotion of Christianity by the school. Now the conservative Christian group First Liberty is acting like this is some kind of faith-based censorship. And so here's a statement. Too often we have seen well-meaning school officials thinking they are complying with the Establishment Clause mistakenly go too far and censor the private speech of students, violating students' rights under the Free Speech Clause, said First Liberty General Counsel Mike Berry and Senior Counsel Stephanie Taub or Taub. And so then Hemet continues, it's not going too far because when school officials vet the speech, they have a right to control what is being said. And yet in a similar case at Hillsdale High School, also in Michigan last week, First Liberty successfully got the school to back off, even though a valedictorian there was using her platform to talk about Jesus. And it continues, there's a bit of difference though. At Hillsdale, the student was going to talk about how she personally has a quote-unquote relationship with Christ. At John Glenn High School, the student apparently says the purpose of everyone's life is to accept Jesus. It's a weird time to tell her Jewish, Muslim, and atheist classmates they're all going to be tortured for eternity. And I have to say that might be a bit of hyperbole on Hemet's part there, because I think it depends on the Christian. You know, there are these Christians that do seem to take a kind of unseemly satisfaction, a kind of schadenfreude in the idea that they're, you know, so special, they're saved. And you... Oh, too bad. You're going to go to hell, you know? <laughs> um, and that reminds me of, I did a little documentary special several years ago on the so-called abominable fancy. Um, almost tripped over abominable. Abominable. There I go. Um, this idea that, you know, the saints and the saved get to look down from heaven down on the suffering of those in hell. And unfortunately, some Christians do, see, do seem the kind of delight in or embody that spirit. But there are others who have a softer approach who believe that, you know, a good and loving God wouldn't condemn someone to an eternity of torture uh, just because they didn't believe in the right God, even though they were good people in life, you know? And as longtime listeners will know, I'm a non-believer, but I was raised Catholic. And I found an interesting article addressing this topic on a site called franciscanmedia.org. Um, and so someone asked about, you know, do only Christians go to heaven, etc.? And the answer is, Whoever is in heaven is indeed there because of the saving passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That does not mean, however, that everyone in heaven had an explicit faith in Jesus before arriving there or was even baptized. The saying, in quotes, outside the church there is no salvation, is credited to St. Cyprian, 3rd century. More than 150 years later, St. Augustine wrote that the church has some people whom God does not have, and God has some people whom the church does not have, um, which I would take as meaning there are people within the church who are unworthy, and there are people, you know, sinful people, hypocrites or whatever, and there are people outside of the church who are good people in spirit and who are deserving of heaven. 
And then it continues, Father Leonard Feeney, S.J. And I think that's a Jesuit um, abbreviation, right? Society of Jesus or something like that. Was excommunicated in 1953 for his overly strict interpretation of St. Cyprian's saying. He was later reconciled with the Roman Catholic Church, which continues to reject his position on the issue, or on this issue. And then it goes on to talk about Vatican II, this time it's personal. At Vatican II, a document on Catholicism's relation to Judaism eventually became the, in quotes, Decree on the Relationship of the Church to Non-Christian Religions, approved October 28, 1965. After addressing how Hinduism and Buddhism address deep human needs, the bishops wrote, So too other religions which are found throughout the world attempt in different ways to overcome the restlessness of people's hearts by outlining a program of life covering doctrine, moral precepts, and sacred rites. The Catholic Church rejects nothing of what is true and holy in these religions. It has a high regard for the manner of life and conduct, the precepts and doctrines which, although differing in many ways from its own teaching, nevertheless often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men and women. Yet it proclaims and is duty-bound to proclaim without fail Christ who is the way, the truth, the life, and him. Uh, in, in whom God reconciled all things to himself, um, people find the fullness of their religious life. This show is falling apart. I think I was just getting eBay notifications too. I could edit that out, but I think I'll leave it in for the sake of comedy. And it continues, after acknowledging Muslims who worship one God, venerate Jesus as a prophet, honor Mary, and are devoted to prayer, almsgiving, and fasting, the decree describes Catholicism's debt and unique relationship with Jewish people, specifically rejecting the claim that they are cursed for the part some Jews played with the Romans in Jesus' death. So that's kind of worded, <laughs> oddly. Um... And of course, there is this um, horrible history of, uh, of anti-Semitism on the part of Christians towards Jews and this whole idea of blood libel. Um, but the way I think it's the, their heart is in the right place, but it's kind of weird the way they worded it specifically rejecting the claim that they are cursed for the part some Jews played with the Ro played with the Romans in Jesus's death. And so yeah, I guess it's technically true if you believe in the story that some of the villains of the piece, shall we say, happen to be Jewish, like Judas, uh Caiaphas, etc., um the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders who handed uh Jesus over. Um, but at the same time, Jesus, Jewish, um, the other apostles, Jewish, um, his mother, Joseph, Jewish, um, his brother, if you believe, you know, I guess it depends on the interpretation, but I think the consensus is James was supposedly the brother of the Lord, uh, his brother, Jewish, um, the crowds that he preached to and that followed him, Jewish. Um, Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, Jewish. Uh, I think at least three of the four gospel writers, I believe it's thought that Luke was uh, a Gentile, a traveling companion, a physician, a traveling companion of uh, Paul, also a physician. 
um, the first generation of Christians, uh, for the most part, would have been Jewish. They probably weren't called Christians yet. Um, at, th at this time, it's what biblical scholars refer to as the Jewish, uh, or sorry, the Jesus movement. Um, yeah, the first uh, quote-unquote Christians would have been Jewish, and there were even, um, you know, there were battles and infighting over whether or not um, Gentiles who wanted to convert to Christianity should have to observe Jewish dietary laws, whether or not they should be circumcised. So Christianity, Jewish religion, emerged out of Judaism, whole lot of Jewish going on. And so that was always a pet peeve of mine. You know, anti-Semitism on the part of Christians never made any sense to me. And on top of that, it's just crappy to be bigoted, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But then that article continues, the uh, Catholic article, not Hemet Mehta's article. We'll get back to that. According to Vatican II's Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Christians have been configured to the death of Christ, but go forward in hope to the resurrection. The text immediately adds, All of this holds true not only for Christians, but also for all people of goodwill in whose hearts grace is active and visibly. For since Christ died for everyone, and since all are in fact called to one in the same destiny, which is divine, we must hold that the Holy Spirit offers to all the possibility of being made partners in a way known to God in the, past, in the Paschal mystery. You know what? I've always loved the word Paschal, and I haven't said for a while. Paschal mystery. Paschal lamb. All right. But so back to that uh, Patheos article, it continues... I get why the schools might cave under pressure in these situations. These may not be the hills they want to die on. Lawsuits are expensive, and the court system right now allows religion to be an excuse to get away with practically anything. But if they were smarter, the administrators would just make sure students' speeches are either eliminated from graduation entirely or never seen in advance by the adults. Would that invite chaos? Sure, just wait until someone promotes Satanism. But it would avoid potential problems, too. I'm just chuckling because I get a kick out of when, like, Satanists do those, um... What's the word I'm looking for? The kind of opening prayers or invocations at these kind of city council meetings. Sometimes the Satanic Temple will have to resort to lawsuits. Other times they let them actually do it. I always think that's a riot. You'll see a bunch of these kind of stuffy politicians or people in kind of, you know, suits and ties at um, at a city council meeting. And then you'll see like a guy in a black robe uh, chanting or whatever. I'm just imagining something similar happening at a uh, high school graduation. And I think whatever you think of the Satanic Temple, they are really good to have around because I think they do help to fight or safeguard you know, uh, the separation of church and state and um, religious freedom and, and religious equality. Uh, I actually, I think I have two of their mugs. I have a Krampus mug and I think I have a baby Baphomet mug somewhere. But back to the article. 
Even stepping away from the legal questions, though, these students are unbelievably selfish, using this opportunity to speak to their classmates to proselytize. They could say something uplifting or memorable. Instead, they're using the stage to tell classmates why their religion is better than everyone else's. It's utterly disrespectful to everyone in the audience who doesn't share their views and a sign that regardless of GPA, they really haven't learned the most important lessons about humanity during high school. If we were talking about any religion other than Christianity here, maybe that would be evident to everyone else, but Christian privilege allows certain people to get away with anything. And so I think he's right on a couple of counts there. Yeah, definitely if it was another religion, especially if it was Islam, yeah, you, you, definitely, um, you would definitely see some people getting upset. Um, and the thing about it being selfish, I agree with that too. I don't completely blame the child. Uh, I imagine it has something to do with the parents, the way the kids were indoctrinated and um, drilled to think that Christianity you know, comes before everything else and they have a duty to go out and proselytize and convert everyone else or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think it is when, I mean, I'm trying to be somewhat charitable towards um, these young people, you know, they, they might be legal adults, but they're probably like 17 or 18, but still really young and, you know, still probably under the influence of their, their parents. But yeah, when you break it down, I think it is selfish, uh, cause there are people with different beliefs, you know, in the audience, there probably are, um, there's probably Hindus, Muslims, uh, secular people, people with no faith, you know, and, you're basically preaching to kind of a captive audience about how the point of life is to d devote yourself to Jesus Christ or whatever. But before we move on from this story, I thought I'd read a little more about the First Amendment and the Establishment Clause for some, you know, further or additional context. And so this article is from MTSU, so I think Middle Tennessee State University, if I'm not mistaken, .edu. And this part of the website is entitled The First Amendment Encyclopedia, and it has an article pertaining to graduation speech controversies. And so it starts off, Supreme Court decisions have interpreted the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment not only to prohibit public prayers in public schools during school hours, but also to exclude them from important school-sponsored functions. The court has also ruled on other free speech concerns in schools. And so it continues, the court has established that students have limited free speech rights. In Lee v. Wiseman, 1992, the court ruled that a junior high school could not invite a member of the clergy to deliver invocations or benedictions at a graduation without unduly coercing those in attendance to be subjected to religious exercises of which they might not approve. The court further extended this prohibition to student-led prayers at high school football games in Santa Fe Independent School District versus Doe, 2000. So let's see, I'll skip down a couple paragraphs um, just for the sake of time. Court has upheld the censoring of student graduation speeches. And it's weird, it doesn't say the court, it just says court. I don't know what the uh, 
implications are or if that's just a kind of shorthand or whatever. It is not altogether clear how such varied precedents apply to students' graduation speeches. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in Cole v. Oroville Union High School District, circa 2000, upheld a decision by high school officials in Oroville, California, rejecting a proposed student prayer in a proposed student speech at graduation ceremonies. The reasoning behind the court's decision was that both the prayer and the speech were attempts to proselytize that would involve the school in violations of the Establishment Clause by making it appear that the school was endorsing the students' religious views. The school district was following its established policy of clearing all such speeches with the principal beforehand. And so maybe I'll just read one more example because I don't want to risk everyone falling asleep on me here. Let's see, this Ninth Circuit Court came to a similar decision in Lausanne versus Pleasanton Unified School District, uh, circa 2003. In that case, the principal had previewed the speech of a graduating high school valedictorian and concluded that the speech was proselytizing. The principal gave permission for the student to deliver a modified version of the speech and to distribute copies of his uncensored speech outside the graduation site, which I think is a is kind of a nice compromise. The court ruled that the principal's censorship of oral speech was appropriate. It avoided the appearance of the school's sponsorship of such activities, as well as the coercive effect on listeners who did not share the speaker's religious beliefs. But I thought that was pretty interesting. It gives you uh, some sense of the legalities involved and of, you know, rulings in past similar cases. And just to show you how naive I am, I had no idea that um, high schools were in the habit of vetting graduation speeches. I never really thought about it, to be honest. I guess I would have just assumed that maybe there were just certain guidelines, like the school would tell the student no profanity, no incitement to violence, uh, try to keep it appropriate, and that kind of thing. But I guess it makes sense, that, you know, from a legal standpoint if for no other reason because you don't want to you know the school has to worry about a violation of the establishment clause and lawsuits and that kind of thing but on to the next story and talk about a third rail topic uh israel versus palestine i had been intentionally trying to avoid this topic but then i saw that jenk uger had a tweet that was kind of making the rounds yeah, very kind of strange, and I don't think it's that big of a deal, but people thought it was a little tone deaf. And I actually think the Young Turks um, did pretty kind of fair and nuanced coverage of this topic. So it was weird to see Cenk tweet this weird, and I'm the host of an atheist podcast, and it even struck me as kind of like an old school, kind of edgy, you know, r slash atheist kind of thing. But this tweet was uh, brought to my attention via a Jimmy Dore video. And it's funny how I can still remember when both Jimmy Dore and Dave Rubin were working on the Young Turks. So it's so weird how everything has become so kind of uh, splintered. Um, but yeah, and I kind of get my news from all over the place. And, and there is this weird kind of... Uh, tension I feel online where almost like you're supposed to take sides. Are you a Jimmy Dore guy? Are you a Young Turks guy? Etc. Etc. I still, you know, get my uh, my news from all over the place. 
But yeah, there's definitely uh, some bad blood between the Young Turks and Jimmy Dore now. And so Jimmy was kind of, I think he was really enjoying, you know, sharing this tweet. Uh, Jenks kind of tone deaf tweet with, with everyone. And I thought it was kind of funny. So I'm like, originally I was going to do it as a little mini standalone episode, but then I was dragging my feet per the usual lately and it was time to release a full length episode. So I'm like, uh, I'll just fold this into the other news stories and make it a part of the main show. And before I actually read the tweet, just to give you some more context and give you my own kind of take on all this, and to be honest, I'm not really up on my geopolitics, and I know this is a very serious issue that you have to kind of approach, you know, carefully and responsibly. And of course, you have to offer the obligatory, you know, being critical or taking issue with certain policies of the Israeli government does not make you anti-Semitic. You know, there are plenty of American Jews and even Israelis who take issue with some of the policies of the Israeli government. That being said, my kind of layman's take or kind of nutshell analysis of all this is that this most recent flare-up in this seeming unending cycle of violence between Palestine and Israel was caused at least in part by what some are saying was a kind of cynical political ploy on uh, the part of Bibi Netanyahu, who was under pressure to form a government. And so people are saying for political reasons, he ordered Israeli troops into the Al-Aqsa Mosque during Ramadan, you know, to kind of stir the pot so he would have something to bring people together over, you know, and kind of hasten the formation of a government. And I don't know if this is true, but I remember when the story was first breaking, I heard something like, I think this took place on what is also Jerusalem Day. And so um, maybe uh, there was a complaint about uh, or a concern about the sound of the, um, the Islamic prayers coming from the Al-Aqsa Mosque interfering with Jerusalem Day celebrations or whatever. And maybe that was part of it. Because I believe the Israeli troops who went into the Al-Aqsa Mosque did cut the electricity. So armed troops into a place of worship during a important, you know, religious or spiritual time of year, ah, definitely not a good look. And then also, I believe you had an uptick of uh, settlers in the West Bank evicting or forcing Palestinians out of their homes. And I think I heard a suggestion that maybe Netanyahu, maybe, maybe not, um, was turning a blind eye to that for political reasons as well. And then eventually you got Hamas, um, as per the usual, as despicable as it is, launching rockets from civilian locations like hospitals and schools. And then you have Israel launching missiles in return, dead civilians on both sides, um, usually more so on the Palestinian side because Israel just has a much stronger military force and they also have the protection of the uh, Iron Dome defense system. And so it's an endless cycle of violence. And me, you know, I don't want Israelis being blown up. I don't want Palestinians being blown up. Hamas sucks, but, you know, ejecting Palestinians from their homes sucks. So it's just, it's, um, 
a horrible situation, to say the least. And um, obviously the ideal thing is a two-state solution. Will we ever actually see that? I don't know. But yeah, it's just horrible. But I believe Netanyahu is basically on his way out. The last I heard, his I saw a video of it, his opponents kind of gleefully signing, you know, an agreement without him and um, beginning the process of forming a government. But anyway, finally, here's that Cenk Uger tweet. And it looks like he, uh, he published the tweet on May 25th. Israelis and Palestinians kill each other over which sky god they pretend to speak to. And it's politically incorrect to point out there is no human god, let alone one that favors Jews or Muslims. All this violence over the equivalent of which character they like better in the MCU. And in fairness to Jenk, yeah, I think religion is a component. Uh, religion definitely helps people draw tribal lines, you know. But I think there's also ethnic and geopolitical uh, components or factors as well. And so I don't think it's as simple as two sides fighting over which uh, sky god is real or better or whatever. And technically, Judaism and Islam are both Abrahamic faiths, so in a sense, it's the same sky god. But of course, God's kind of an abstraction, uh, a man-made concept. Um, you know, that's whether or not there actually is a higher power. People's concepts of God are man-made. So the fact that different religions share common roots has never stopped people from killing each other in the name of religion, you know? And you would hope that the fact that the Abrahamic faiths share a common root, you know, would bring people together. But I remember one really kind of sad thing I found disheartening. I was watching something, I think it might have been a cable news type of thing, where they had a kind of roundtable discussion or a kind of town hall meeting for an interfaith dialogue. So they had Jews and Muslims and Christians. I remember this one part where this, this nice Muslim guy was trying to reach out to this Christian guy and find common ground. And he was kind of saying, you know, since we both belong to Abrahamic faiths and our religions have a common root and we both worship the God of the Bible, you know, we basically worship the same God, you know? And the Christian guy was like, no, we don't worship the same God. You know, and so kind of disheartening. But when it comes to Israel versus Palestine, you know, the ethnic component is very interesting. I've always found it uh, fascinating how, in a way, um, Judaism is kind of unique where being Jewish can refer to your religion or to your ethnicity. You know, like, I have um, Jewish friends and when the question comes up, you know, oh, what's your um, ethnicity or nationality? You know, like I would say I'm Italian and Irish for the most part, you know, and they might say I'm Jewish or either or even I'm half Jewish, you know, as if Judaism is their their ethnicity. And certainly, you know, when it comes to um, anti-Semitism, people will often look at being Jewish as a racial designation or classification. And certainly when you look at like the Third Reich, they didn't view Jews as just people who were, you know, adhering to a certain religion. They were trying to exterminate a race. Um, so yeah, that is a weird one. And I think, I've always said, I think 
the Third Reich and the Holocaust was kind of a culmination of centuries of anti-Semitism and this idea, this ugly idea of blood libel. But back to, you know, Israel and Palestine, this is kind of a silly, you know, thought experiment or exercise. But let's say every Palestinian suddenly decided to convert to Judaism overnight. Would it be like, Shalom, welcome to the fold? Or would there, you know, the next day, or would there still be that ethnic division, you know? And maybe sadly to that point, uh, I was reading something I found disturbing recently. I can remember news stories years ago about all these, you know, Ethiopian Jews finally being, after centuries and centuries, you know, they're isolated from the rest of the Jewish community, but they held on faithfully to their religious practices and their ethnic identity. And so finally, these Ethiopian Jews, I think, I think there's different theories about which particular group they descended from, but there's this idea that they may, may be members of the lost uh, Hebrew tribe of Dan, I think it is. But finally, they were able to return to, to Israel. And uh, sadly, I was reading how they have to struggle with um, ethnic discrimination from other Jews because maybe they don't fit in as easily because they're African in appearance, you know, but certainly disheartening. But back to Jenk's tweet. So I found an RT article that kind of has a funny take on this. It's entitled Biblical Twitter Cringe. Jenk Uger excommunicated by pundits after saying Israel slash Palestine conflict is fight over best quote unquote sky god. But the funny part is just the uh, the tweets they list in response to uh, Jenk's tweet. So let's see, there's some guy named Q. Anthony, and he says, You ever feel like you should leave a tweet in the drafts overnight and see how you feel about it in the morning? And then there's uh, Aaron Mata, or Meta, hopefully uh, I'm not butchering that. I remember Jimmy Dore talking about him. He's... Um, a journalist, and I think TYT took issue with his his uh, coverage of Syria, but he says, my God tells me this is the worst tweet of all time. Then someone named Alan McLeod, this tweet has some serious Richard Dawkins energy to it. Poor Richard, always getting bagged on. He does have some strange tweets, you know, here and there, but I still love Richard Dawkins. I'm, a, I'm an old school, you know, Four Horsemen fan. What can I say? And then there's someone named Sana Saeed, I think it is, and she says, what the hell is this 2007 Edgelord tweet? <laughs> and then Jenk responds, is this more about land, power, and colonialism? Of course. I already had and won that debate with Sam Harris many years ago. But if you think both sides don't fervently believe they're supported by the sky god and that doesn't also drive them, then you're kidding yourself. Hashtag free Palestine. But then you could say, well, if he thinks it's more about land, power, and colonialism... What was the point of the Sky God tweet in the first place? But I don't know. Am I being unfair? What do you guys think? Do you think Jenk has it right? Does he got it wrong? I don't know. Let me know in the comments. But anyway, uh, there was one more story I want to do. It's also from the Friendly Atheist. And it's entitled Remains of 215 Children Found at Catholic-Run Residential School in Canada. And so I know that's a pretty gruesome and depressing title. But the reason why I want to, you know, include this story 
is that it always makes my blood boil when I hear about the kind of um, oppression and subjugation and assimilation of indigenous peoples. You know, whether we're talking about here in America or to our north in Canada or wherever. Uh, and of course, first and foremost, there's the human rights issues, but also as someone who's absolutely fascinated by indigenous cultures, by their art, their religious practices, their traditions, I just think it's uh, so egregious, the idea of eclipsing that and replacing it with European Christianity. And this um, arrogant notion that we're going to come to your land, not only are we going to come to your land, take your land, but we're going to replace your religion, your traditions with ours because we think ours is better. Ours is right, you know? But I'll read a bit from this article, and it's dated May 29th. As we posted on this site months ago, Canada's system of residential schools were designed to, in quotes, replace indigenous values, beliefs, and understandings of the world with those of European colonizers. That meant converting students to Christianity. It was a form of cultural genocide. If that sounds like something that must have occurred centuries ago, think again. The last government-funded residential school in Canada didn't close until 1996. On Thursday, on the grounds of the Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia, which didn't close until 1969, the First Nation tribe announced that preliminary radar analysis had uncovered the remains of 215 children who were buried there, some as young as three. To be blunt about it, members of the First Nation tribe were taken to these schools by the Catholic Church in order to indoctrinate them. Students were believed to be malnourished and abused. Many were sick. The schools were often unsanitary. Rather than treat the children and help them, they were left for dead. And now apparently we see they were unceremoniously buried as well. Chief Harvey McLeod of the Upper Nicola Band, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, attended the school from 1966 to 68 and recalls how he and other students would wonder what had happened to some of their peers who stopped showing up to class. He remembers one particular instance when they assumed a classmate had run away and made it home. We never knew nor did we question. And one day what I recall is somebody said he died and we left it at that, McLeod says. Somehow these torture chambers called schools were even worse than anyone knew. It raises another disturbing question. How many more children's remains are buried on the grounds of other residential schools? There's no way to bring the children back. What government officials in the Catholic Church must do is use their resources to uncover the truth and take steps to make sure this never happens again. These residential faith-based schools must also be treated and taught as the indoctrination camp they were. And so it continues, reaction to the discovery was swift. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tweeted that the news was, in quotes, a painful reminder of that dark and shameful chapter of our country's history. BC Premier John Horgan also made a statement saying he was horrified and heartbroken. This is a tragedy of unimaginable proportions. 
And it is a stark example of the violence the Canadian residential school system inflicted upon Indigenous peoples, and how the consequences of these atrocities continue to this day. Then Hemet continues, The Catholic Church has done this sort of thing for a long time, and not just in Canada. Mass graves of women and babies were discovered at Catholic homes in Ireland recently, too. And it continues, There are other calls for action. Founding director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation at the University of Manitoba, Moran said the uncovering of the burial site in Kamloops highlights the need for the government leaders to act on the commission's calls to action, including the creation of a residential school's national monument in Ottawa and the creation of a statutory holiday, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, to honor survivors and victims. It's very concerning we haven't seen more progress on some of these fundamental and important calls to action, Moran said. Pope Francis, by the way, said in 2018 that he won't apologize for the church's role in these residential schools. Whatever his excuses, his refusal to do even the bare minimum tells you a lot about the moral depravity of the church. Yeah, and so there was an embedded link to a 2018 CBC article Trudeau disappointed by Pope's decision not to apologize for residential schools. Truth and Reconciliation Commission called for a papal apology to survivors. Let's see, and then further down it says, A letter released Tuesday by the President of the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops says Pope Francis has not shied away from recognizing injustices faced by Indigenous peoples around the world, but he can't personally apologize for residential schools. Well, couldn't he at least apologize on behalf of the Church as its leader? It seems like the least he could do. Is this some kind of calculated thing where they're refusing to apologize directly because they're afraid of lawsuits or whatever? Are the coffers running dry from all those abuse settlements? You know, earlier in the uh, episode, I was trying to be kind of nice, taking it easy on the Catholic Church, saying, hey, at least they say you don't have to be a Christian to get into heaven. But then this, I don't know. <laughs> this is a depressing story to end the show on. But yeah, almost 50 minutes in and I'm getting tired. So thank you everyone for listening as always. And you know the drill, you can like the Facebook page, you can follow the show on Twitter, you can check out the YouTube channel, maybe you're doing that now. And if you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. And also, of course, you can review the show through either iTunes or the podcast app, and I'll even read your review on the air. All right, brothers and sisters, thanks again, and until next week.